Welcome to De Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This podcast series is a way for authors to connect with readers throughout America, even though their tours have been canceled due to COVID-19. To discover more debut authors, please visit debeautiful.net and subscribe to the podcast feed where we have in-depth interviews with people like Chelsea Beaker, Brandon Taylor, and Emma Copley-Eisenberg. This is actually going to be the last digital book tour because I'm switching up my pattern of doing podcasts. I originally only planned on doing one a month because I was in the middle of moving, to be honest with you, and I now that I'm settled, I'm like, let's just do as many podcasts as I can do. There will still be prints. June will have two podcasts plus a few print interviews. Today's guest is actually not even a debut author. His first book came out in 2012. It is called The Evening Hour, and it is amazing. I got the chance to read it after this interview was recorded. That book in 2012 was a Lambda Award finalist, and it was also an Oregon Book Award finalist. He has written in numerous publications like the Oxford American, BuzzFeed, Bellevue Literary Review, and so many more. He's currently a professor at Eastern Kentucky University where he teaches English. His latest book is The Prettiest Star. His name is Carter Sickles, and I'm unbelievably excited that he is wrapping up this digital book tour. I talked to so many great authors, and they were all special, but this one is definitely definitely special. I never really get the chance to read non-debuts ever since I started this project, so I'm glad I accidentally thought this was a debut for a while um, and then loved it, and I'm glad that Carter was able to come on. So enough of me rambling. Here's Carter Sickles. Uh, Thank you, Carter, so much for taking the time to talk to me on the podcast today. How's everything going in your world during COVID-19 and social distancing while trying to promote a book? (laughs) Uh, Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a great podcast, and I'm excited to um, talk with you. Yeah, I mean, it's been strange, like, for so many of us, and I'm doing fine. Like, I'm okay. I'm healthy. So I feel very fortunate. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a disappointment to realize that my tour would be completely <laughs> canceled and that I would not be uh, going to any of the cities or the bookstores that I had expected to. Um, but I have come to, you know, place of acceptance with that. And I think it's been amazing just to see how bookstores and, um, you know, other podcasts have uh, been reaching out and really trying to get the books out there for me and for so many other um, authors who are facing this. Um, yeah, it's such a difficult time right now, and I'm I'm so glad that publicists and bookstores and you know everyone's just being flexible and kind of breaking a lot of rules and like let's just do mm-hmm. a, let's just do a Zoom call or panel once a week. Who cares? We'll we'll get these awesome authors' right. names out there. um yeah 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 so part of part of debut oh go on i would say one thing that's been really interesting is just to like have access to all these fantastic readings you know it's like um i just watched an interview with um olivia lang from her home in england yesterday um in the afternoon and so that was that's cool so i'm trying to look for the you know the silver lining as well as like um being able to to reach and connect with these other uh, authors and writers across the world. Exactly, like with 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 Beautiful with my site, I I interview authors for the website, and a lot of times it's you know email Q and A, which isn't the best, but it's like what's easiest for people with busy lives. 
But then with Mm -hmm. social distancing and working my day job from home, I've been able to like interview a lot more people for a podcast that I thought was going to be monthly. And I think like you're the 15th extra person I had not planned on interviewing that I got to interview, (laughs) you know, so you're right. Silver linings. And then, and then day beautiful is it was supposed to be for debut authors, but then like during this time I expanded it just to like books I had read that I really wanted to read and, and your book isn't a debut, but I do want to kind of go back to 2012 with your debut novel, The Evening Hour. You had kind of gone through the traditional publication book tour without COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> and this is going to be a really dumb question, but what is the biggest difference between 2012 and 2020 with publishing a novel outside of the pandemic? Side of the pandemic, yeah. you know, I think for me, one of the the biggest changes, which has has been um, great for me this this time around, is uh, I just like, I, I don't I think people were on Twitter, but it wasn't being used in the same way. There was no Instagram. Like, there's just so much more kind of um, uh, ways to kind of reach people and publicize your book through social media now. And so, like, Instagram's been great just to like connect. Um, the readers and kind of get the book out there. You know, I'm with an independent um, small press hub city. And I think um, for us to really get our, get the work out there, like the social media has just been fantastic. Um, So that is something that, um, yeah, I just don't think was around as much in 2012 and it was easier um, especially if you were a debut author um, or you're with a small press to just get, um, lost, you know, to just sort of, um, disappear (laughs) pretty quickly. Uh, so that's been really kind of great to see that, that difference in that. Yeah. As much as literary Twitter likes to complain about literary Twitter, I think it's such a great tool. Just (laughs) like, I, like there's so many people whose books I never would have heard of. Like you said, I like hub city is a small press and even though they're putting out some of my favorite books right now, a lot of people don't even know what hub city is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's been, it's good for anyone who's at a small press or any debut authors, you know, um, any authors from like some more marginalized communities. I think um, there is a little bit more access right now in terms of getting the work out there. And then your, your latest book, The Prettiest Star is coming out on Hub City. Was it originally supposed to come out in April and then it just got reshuffled due to the pandemic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Like many uh, authors, of mm-hmm. the pub date was just moved back. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was supposed to be April, and now it's May 19th is our, our launch date. Great, yeah. And tell readers, what is The Prettiest Star about in your own words? I always like to ask authors because, you know, publicists and booksellers, we all, and then like the media, we all morph what the book is about in our own eyes. But for you, for mm-hmm. Carter, what is The Prettiest Star? Well, The Prettiest Star is it's set, I'll give you a little bit of setup that it is set in 1986 and it's about Brian Jackson, who's a young gay man who's been uh, estranged from his family and living in New York since he was 18. And now um, the AIDS epidemic is sort of raging around him and he's lost his friends and his boyfriend and he himself has uh, HIV positive. And so he decides to return to this small town in Ohio uh, where he grew up. And so it's um, 
it's looking at the AIDS epidemic kind of through this lens of like small time, small town America through this one um, family. But it's also about shame and secrecy. For me, it's about homophobia and familial homophobia. And because when Brian goes back home, his parents insist that he keep his sexuality and his HIV status a secret. And that secrecy and shame uh, weighs on Brian. And it also kind of tears uh, the family apart as rumors kind of spread around this small town and the family's harassed. And uh, the novel, it's about Brian. He's kind of the center, but it's looking at um, this family unit and his little sister, Jess, who's 14 and hasn't seen her brother since she was eight. And she doesn't know why he left or why he came back. And then um, his mother, Sharon, who uh, loves her son, but she's still so worried about what the church will say or what the neighbors uh, will say. Um, and so it moves, it's told in multiple points of view and it um, kind of follows those three characters. Mm-hmm. And before we dive into talking about the book, I wanted to, part of like this, my extended podcast is giving authors the chance to read from the book because they are not able to read in front of an audience. Um, mm-hmm. What would you be reading for us today? Okay, so I will read actually from Jess's um, point of view, and this is her first chapter in the book, um, and I'll just read a part of this scene. So this is when her mother is um, going to tell her that Brian is coming back, and um, the only thing you need to know is Jess uh, has a kind of obsession with whales, with killer whales. She watches a lot of TV shows about them. She reads about them, um, so that'll come up in this. Killer whales are the most misunderstood of whales. To begin with, although everyone calls them whales, they're actually dolphins. For hundreds of years, people believed killer whales were man-eaters. It's not true. They don't attack humans. Killer whales travel in pods and hunt and play and rest together. In the wild, the females can live up to 100 years. A mother's offspring stays with her for life. They mourn their dead. My mother fakes interest. Something is wrong. She hardly ever comes downstairs except to do laundry, and she's not much of a TV watcher. Will you look at that, she says, eyes on the screen. How can that be real? The show has moved on to blue whales, the biggest mammal on Earth. One parts the ocean like a giant submarine. A close-up shows its enormous battle-scarred body, all the nicks and healed-over cuts and scrapes, cement-colored barnacles clinging to it like clusters of dead flowers. Bigger than any of the dinosaurs, the man says in his calm voice. Its heart is the size of a Volkswagen bug. Facts I already know. When I was little, I poured over the pictures in the sea, part of a collection of books from Life Nature Library my grandmother gave me and my brother one Christmas. We also had early man, the mammals, the universe. I saw my first episode of the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau when I was four or five, and after that I was hooked. I want to be a marine biologist, but I live in Ohio. I've never even been to the ocean. I reach into the box of Cheez-Its. You're going to ruin your supper, my mother says. My mother doesn't eat junk food, and I'm sure she, and she's always on a diet, even though she isn't fat, not like my aunt. I'm not either, but I'm plump. That was what one of my Sunday school teachers said about me. Plump is a horrible word, like chunky. My mother is pretty. Everyone thinks so. She looks like a movie star in one of those old black and white movies that run on Saturday afternoons when nothing else is done except baseball or kung fu. Jess, honey, there's something I need to tell you. This is what she sounded like the day she told me about sex, when a man and woman love each other, 
when they're married, she'd started using the same teacher voice she's using now. And I wanted to die hearing my mother say the word penis. What? I ask. The orange crackers are the size of postage stamps, and I drop them one at a time in my mouth, splintering and crushing them with my teeth. The corners of her lips lift, but they are pressed too tightly to turn into a smile. She's still wearing her work clothes, iron tan slacks, a navy blouse with scooped neck, and her makeup is softer on the eyes. Unlike my grandmother, my mother doesn't believe makeup should call attention to itself, but only be used to enhance natural beauty. When I turned 14, she told me I was allowed to wear blush and lip gloss, but I have hardly ever put it on. I don't look right in it. Not like the girls at school. It's about your brother, she says. Brian, I ask stupidly, as if I have more than one. He's coming home. My mother's eyes, a light brown like watered-down Pepsi, the same color as mine, glisten, but no tears fall. She tells me he'll be here this weekend. To stay? To visit, I ask, to stay? A little sigh escapes her. Her shoulders sink. We don't know yet. I have a million questions, and she says we'll talk more during supper after my father gets home. She needs to check on the meatloaf, she says. She kisses me on the forehead, and the fruity, soapy scent of Charlie, her work perfume, lingers after she's gone. The invisible man on TV and his trusting, all-knowing voice explains they don't know where the blue whales go to breed, somewhere deep in the ocean that scientists can't pinpoint. As a marine biologist, I will work for National Geographic or NOVA. I'll go out in a boat in the middle of the ocean. No sign of land for miles. Blue, more blue. Brian and I used to watch Jacques Cousteau together. One time he brought home the record Songs of the Humpback Whale, and we listened to it stretched out on our backs across the carpet, pretending we were floating in the sea. I dust off my hands. My mouth tastes salty and dry. A sperm whale lifts its gigantic wrinkled head out of the dark water and the screen goes to static. The tape ran out before the show ended. I curl my knees up to my chest, wrap my arms around them. Suddenly I feel very small. I haven't seen my brother since I was eight years old. Sometimes Brian would let me come in his room and we'd listen to records and play Go Fish, candles dripping wax, David Bowie singing about moon age daydreams and outer space and a star man, thick flowery scent of incense. Brian blew cigarette smoke out the cracked windows, talked about California, New York, dream states, he said, where people went to be free. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much for reading that. I, I love, when I was reading it, I love that she loves whales because I also love whales and I like that connection. <laughs> um, the, the idea of writing from all these different perspectives to tell Brian's story, but like you said, it's also the family story and the town story. When when you were coming up with the prettiest star, did you always have that that kind of structure in mind? This chorus of narration. Um, I've I've always been drawn to books that use a multiple um, points of view. You know, from everything from As I Lay Dying, from Faulkner, um, The Poisonwood Diary uh, by Barbara Kingsolver. Um, the Hours by Michael Cunningham. So I've always sort of been drawn to those. And, and my first book was um, a single narrator in third person. So in some ways I wanted to kind of challenge myself and, and, and try writing in first person and writing uh, using multiple narrators. Um, but I did settle on it pretty early on as well, just for the, the way I was kind of envisioning the book. Um, I knew, as, as we said, that it it was Brian's story, but it wasn't just contained to him. And I, I needed to see like how this family would sort of um, 
fall apart or evolve, you know, what, whatever would happen with them. And it, in order to kind of tell that story, I needed the perspectives of the other characters. And I, when I started, it was, I was really focused on Brian and Jess. And I thought it, maybe it would be more of like a sibling story, which I think there is that part of it. But then Sharon's point of view came in a few months into it. And that really kind of opened the novel up to me in a, in a way and gave me a stronger sense of like what it could be about and like the shape of it. Um, and so then I did stick with that um, multiple point of view perspective pretty early on. And then there's a lot about the book that I love I mean, the setting, small town Appalachia, is something that I've really been reading a lot about more and more Mm -hmm. in recent years. You're from, or you currently live in the area, in in Appalachia. Did you grow up in the area? I grew up in Ohio, in a small rural town, not not Appalachian. Um, But then I went to um, college in Athens, Ohio, which is kind of Appalachia, Ohio. I live in, uh, then I've lived in New York and I lived in Portland and I came to Kentucky for a teaching job. So I do live here. I live in Lexington, so I'm not really in what's Appalachia, but close by for sure. So your, your foot has been in and out of the area for a long time. Um, why set this story? Like, you know, Brian comes back from New York. What was important to explore? Mm -hmm queer culture in the 80s in Appalachia? I think, you know, especially during um, the time of the AIDS crisis and queer culture in the 80s, you know, we just didn't see in literature or in film or any kind of representation where we got that kind of intersection between the rural and queer experiences. So I'm really interested in that just as as someone who did grow up in a small town and you know, I think was hungry for that kind of um, uh, imagery or just representation to be able to see some aspect of myself in that. Um, So I was kind of thinking about the importance of trying to set uh, a queer novel in a small town kind of setting. And then I think too, I mean, it was sort of a sliver of stories that were occurring during the AIDS crisis. Um, You know, like the epicenters were, of course, New York and and San Francisco, where communities face such devastation. And so many queer people, like myself included, like go move to cities for that acceptance and community and support. Um, But some of those men in the 80s and 90s had to return to these small towns for different reasons, to to the families that often had rejected them. So I, I wanted to kind of tell that story and um, think about uh, like what that would feel like for Brian to kind of return back to the closet after living this very sort of more out and um, uh, accepted life. Um, and also just to kind of shine a light on that part of the epidemic that you don't hear much about. Yeah, you're right. I mean, every it's it's weird to say like queer culture is in the mainstream now, but every mainstream representation, like especially of this time period, like Pose is on FX, and 
It's about, you know, even like there's the, the character who moves from rural Pennsylvania to New York City, and that's the story we see, and that's the story we often see. Um, right. And it's so, that's what, it's just so interesting that, and even like I was reading the Stonewall Reader that the New York Public Library put out last year for the 50th anniversary, and all the stories, mm-hmm. and like, it's like a lot of biographies or interviews, and it's like, I was from X, and now I'm in New York or San Francisco, and it's like, those are the stories that are so much shared. Um, did you, did you research stories of men going back to their rural hometowns or or what was that look what did that look like in like the 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 pre-writing and the writing part of this yeah i mean i think that well i think that you know it's important that we have all of these different kinds of queer stories so i I love that there are these kind of you know like poses and that um and, and these stories are taking place in these urban centers and then um yeah, like uh, just telling the the most sort of diverse stories that we can about queer experiences. And like um, for this, I did uh, do some research. I mean, there wasn't sort of a lot of documentation of like um, men returning back home in the 80s, but uh, but I did find, um, you know, a few articles and there's a a fantastic book uh, called My Own Country by Abraham Verghese about his time as an um, infectious disease doctor in uh, East Tennessee and how AIDS came to this very rural area and people just did not know how to um, deal with it. Um, And a lot of his patients were uh, gay men who had returned from cities. And then I guess one of the early kind of inspirations for the book and um, a story that did kind of make the mainstream um, press in like 87 was about this guy who uh, lived in West Virginia. And I think he'd been living in maybe Atlanta or Houston, like he was living in a big city and then returned back to his um, small town in West Virginia. And he uh, was um, diagnosed with AIDS and he went swimming in the town swimming pool and he was kicked out of the pool. And uh, there's a similar scene that happens in my novel. But I saw that on Oprah Winfrey when I was like 14 years old and it really sort of struck a chord with me. And I didn't understand why I did at the time, but I later went back to that episode and it's, it's really intense to watch now because the entire kind of community is there. She took her show on the road to West Virginia. The entire community is there, as is this man, and he's sitting on stage, and it's just so ugly and vitriolic. Like, there's a man that stands up and says, you know, all gay men should be wiped off the face of the earth, and everyone in the audience applauds. And, um, and so I just think that the level of, like, homophobia and how vitriolic it was during that time is like hard to sort of grasp if you weren't if you didn't kind of um experience that or 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 see that yeah as you were speaking i I pulled up i found the art like an article on oprah's website and like the photo is Mm. oprah Oprah in the stands and like the hatred on this one woman's face is just like it it tells a thousand words you know yeah 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 and that's why I think stories like the one that you wrote is so important because you're right, the representation of all different stories for uh, marginalized communities and 
and this is one that isn't told that often. Um, when you were writing it, how did you handle? Because like this is a it's a very specific point in time, and it's very different than now. How did you handle it emotionally, writing a story with so much homophobia in it? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the like sort of the research I was doing. I mean, I grew up in the in the uh, '80s and '90s, so I did sort of have my own memories of that time period. But yeah, reading kind of the research of just the the um, the accounts of men who were, you know, disowned by their families or who um, who were rejected from hospitals or nurses weren't caring for them or, you know, parents weren't picking up their bodies from the morgue. I mean, it was just so intense. So a, a lot of that was so um, heartbreaking. And I watched a lot of documentaries as well. Um, so I think that part of it was at times sort of difficult to like navigate um, because there was so much trauma. And, um, but, uh, you know, I, that's why I tried to bring some sort of um, moments of levity in the book too, and really try to get uh, sort of diversity of like emotions and of depth of different emotions in the book. So it's not, <laughs> you know, uh, about trauma or sadness. Um, and I think, you know, I think that there's still, like, I've had to kind of deal with homophobia in my own life and transphobia. And um, and I think that although we're in a much better place um, in some ways in society, in terms of how uh, queer people are treated, um, there's still so much uh, rejection and I think a lot of young people still face that as well um, from their families um, from you know society so um, it was certainly it's certainly not at the same level like nationally the the level of homophobia that it was in the 80s um, but I think unfortunately it's still mm. you know a lot of people are still kind of grappling with that well it's, it's it, yeah and I think so I'm watching during the the pandemic. I'm rewatching old episodes of America's Next Top Model. Something I just really liked when it was on, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. homophobia and transphobia that like subtle jokes that are that were quote unquote acceptable in 2006, mm-hmm. seven, eight. I'm just astounded by like, especially the, like in the community that's supposed to be accepting and and et cetera that just pushed yeah so many people away. Um, it's just mind boggling and shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good to sort of see how, you know, that we have made these shifts, you know, and, uh, not without a lot. It's been created. I mean, it's required a lot of like activism, right. And, and fighting to create these changes. But I do think that's heartening to just see how, how things, um, have shifted over the years. Yeah. And I think it's, 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 it's a good reminder that progress, as slow as it may seem, is being made. Because, mm-hmm. like, Tyra Banks, t- 10 years ago, 15 years ago, wasn't that long, like, you know, that's obviously not the 80s in West Virginia or in, oh, you know, Southeast Ohio. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're writing, you also, just like to to talk more about you as a whole, you're 
the, your first book, The Evening Hour, was just turned into a feature film that premiered at Sundance before all the pandemic unfolded. Yeah, yeah. Um, how how was that experience for you before you know the world got turned on its head? <laughs> right before everything changed. <laughs> yeah. um, I, well, I would say I was very you know I'm thrilled that I got to go to to Sundance to experience that because that was at the end of January, so it was you know really before everything um, kind of shifted. Um, yeah, it was it's incredible experience. Um, it was sort of a dream, you know, as for many writers to have your book turned into a film and it was a long um process i mean it's a it's a independent film company and um you know it did premiere at sundance we it is had that we have not found distribution yet um for the film so you can't actually um, watch it yet um but yeah it was a it was a long process a labor of love um it took them about six years i think to pull the film together to get the funding and to get the actors and the director and everybody on board. And then they shot it in Harlan, Kentucky, which is only about three hours from me. So uh, that was really exciting. I got to go to set um, uh, a few times and now I got to meet the actors and um, of course work with the director. And uh, yeah, it was a really great experience just to see um, this work that I also, you know, was published in 2012. So there's so many years kind of, um, I, 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 I didn't feel like maybe as close to the work as I would have, you know, if it had been published two years before. So I think it was easier for me to really let go of, you know, my idea of what the story was and to let the, um, to let Braden King, the director and the filmmakers kind of um, take it in a different Direction. Although I think they they stayed they stayed really close to the spirit of the book and to the characters, um, but I found it was really exciting to see the story kind of transformed into another work of art. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that must be one of the most exciting things as someone who spends their life putting ideas down onto paper to see it brought to life in a whole new way. Yeah, in a very three dimensional <laughs> way. And, um, <laughs> And thinking like, wow, that, you know, you're watching this thing on screen and thinking that it, it all started from some place in your brain. Mm -hmm. It's wild. Mm -hmm. but <laughs> Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I just love, I haven't read The Evening Hour and I ordered it from my local independent store. So I'm excited for it to be dropped off at my... Oh, thank you. Yes, because The Prettiest Star, like, I... I don't often get to read just because of like what I'm trying to do with Debutiful. I don't often get to read non-debut books, and I'm I'm glad right. for about two months. <laughs> I thought the Prettiest Star was a debut because I just don't read emails correctly, <laughs> and it's one of the most beautiful books I've read this year. I loved it so much. Um, oh, thank you so much. What are and I don't think I I warned you that I was going to ask this, but what are other books and authors that you're currently reading or you read recently that really excite you? And sorry to put you on the spot. Um, no, that's okay. I mean, I am trying to do a, a lot of reading right now. I have um, much more time <laughs> um, now. Uh, I actually, I just finished another book about the AIDS epidemic, which is um, the memoir later by Paul Lasicki. Um, and it was just so stunning and beautiful and about that um, time period, but also about like place and how we kind of find these homes and how 
um, a place where we didn't grow up can can take uh, kind of residence, find residence in our hearts. And um, but it's also so much about the queer body and about desire, and it's just it's really beautiful. Um, and then there's a couple of debuts I'm very excited about. Um, Corinne Manning has a book of uh, short stories, We Had No Rules. And then um, my friend Cooper Lee Bombardier has a book of essays coming out um, called Pass With Care about his experiences with trans man. So those are like some things I've been reading. And then I have a big, oh, and then I also read Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Um, yeah, which was great. Gave me some respite and some relief from the you know, this is the wildness of the quarantine. And um, yeah, and then I have a, a lot of stuff on my TBR pile. I'm really excited about Louise Erdrich's new book. Mm-hmm. Um, Godshot, who I, I think you had Chelsea Beaver yes, on yeah, here. I love that I'm book. really excited about mm-hmm. that book. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many good books out. And like, like you said, Paul Lissicky's book was, I also had a chance to read that, which I'm lucky. And it's beautiful and i think i read i i don't even think there was i read yours and his back to back and oh really yeah which i didn't mean to it's just like it happened to arrive right after i had read finished your book so um and that's a one-two punch those if people have the time to read to get like a whole perspective of a certain time period and with different place and different Mm. characters yeah Mm -hmm. well carter thank you so much for taking the time during such a weird time to talk to me like I said, I loved Prettiest Star. I, I hope people discover when it's out on the 19th. Thank you so much. It was really um, such a pleasure to talk with you and to be on your podcast. And, um... Again, thank you so much for Carter coming on the podcast today. He is such a treat, and his book is so beautifully written and such an important story. And it's also out on Hub City, which I hope you check out because they're putting out some of my favorite work right now. It's a smaller press, and smaller presses really deserve a lot of love. You can find Carter on the internet at cartersickles.com and on Twitter at cartersickles. Pretty simple to find. I'll link those in the show notes. As always, I'm Adam. You can find me at DayBeautiful on all the social media on daybeautiful.net, where print interviews are still happening. But there will be two long podcasts coming out in June. I am excited for those. Hope everyone is staying safe. Please keep social distancing. Until next time, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful. And you're all beautiful.